what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Pat, it's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. They have new sponsors. But we've also got some remaining ones as of well course. that we've got to bless them. So it turns out we're actually behind because people jumped into our Patreon and sent us much money and we didn't realize. Until they said, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, where's our ads? Yeah. Here it is. We're doing it. You know where you should get dog training equipment in North America now? Who? Mojo Dog Co. Mojo Dog Co. Yeah, mojodogco.com mm. is a website. There's a real store. It's in Chicago. Yep. But it's a website you can totally go to and they pretty much sell everything. They've got mills. They've got training gear. They've got apparel. There's food. There's dog beds. Like it's a legit store. I've and been you've there. been there. I've you? been there, yeah. Yeah, I, you've I, witnessed I, it firsthand. You've I, smelt um, the odors. You've tasted the food. You've run on the mills. I committed theft. I stole a tub. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was allowed to take it. Too late now. I've got it. I, yeah. I, I just trained with it today. So basically he's paying us Patreon money for you to steal his toys. Yeah. It's okay. a it's a great Klein tug. It's fantastic. A Klein tug? Yeah. Oh, you know who else sells a Klein tug? Uh, who? The Buffhead. The OG Buffhead. Really? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He, he, in fact, he does. I got from the Buffhead a Klein flirt pole which all the dogs favour over all the other ones. Really? Yes. They you like shouldn't that. allow toy preferences, Len. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I don't. They do. They choose what they want. We have two places that you could get dog training equipment. Yes. MojoDogCode.com. Yeah, in North America. Yeah. And yep. Einzawiener. Yep. Dot Buffhead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, know what, you know what's a really cool product? The Rowdy Hound dog kennel. It's the kennel that attaches, like it's a crate that attaches to your motorcycle. Yeah. So you can take your dog anywhere that you're traveling if you own a motorcycle and yep. you want to take your dog with you. If safely, I owned a motorcycle, safely, if safely. I owned a motorcycle or a dog that wanted to ride one, yep. I would 100% get one. I own a motorcycle. You should get one. I should get one. You should get one. I can see you a little Frenchie hanging yep. off the back of your motorbike. Mm. Yeah, I think that Mando would probably cause me to come off my bike. He yeah. would probably rock around like crazy on yeah. that thing. But yeah, a little, little dog like what George Kittridge does, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful bloke and a dear friend of ours. Sponsor of the show. Sponsor of the show. And he takes his little blue healer, which mm-hmm. is an Australian dog. Mm-hmm. And George has been out here in Australia. He knows all about Australia. He stayed mm-hmm. in Australia. He's done it all. Mm-hmm. But he actually takes his little blue healer. And he rides her all around the state and he teaches other people how to do it as well with their dogs. So not only does he sell the product, but he trains people on how to use it as well. That's great. It is. You know, he should get everybody to do a big road trip up to Canada. Yeah. You know what they could do in Canada? What's that? Go to Dan Croft. Ah, Dan Croft. Geez, they could watch a puppy class there, couldn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're doing seminars as well. Really? Yeah, got seminars, they've got teaching, they've got education. But as I spoke to Daniel, who runs Dan Croft, Mm -hmm. he was telling me all about their amazing puppy classes and they do some kick-ass social media. Yeah, they do. They've got some pretty extreme type of breeds over there that they've got them all under perfect control. Like all these American staffies, they've got all these bull breeds that people complain about, whinge about and say they can't be trained. And Mm -hmm. Dan Croft has them doing not only 
beautiful stays, but they also have them on balls. Mm. So they have the dog, Incredible. you know, like inside a tyre and the dog's doing beautiful drop stays while they're at peace and at harmony and somebody's walking around, all the owners are there with the dogs, they're having a great time. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I bet those dogs are well conditioned and healthy. Yep. Yeah. How would they do that? Probably the best way is to get yourself some canine suitacles. Have you been using it? I have actually. No shit. Like jokes aside, Remy was circling the drain. He was in bad shape. And yeah. I said to Narelle, hey, I want to try and get him back in condition, mm. see how much longer I can get from him. Because like the mind is willing, but the body is weak. Yep. And so she hooked me up with all the right things and he's a million times better. In fact, he's actually better than he has been in you know probably two years. And you did a really cool social media content for Narelle the other day, which he really appreciated. I make sweet reels, bro. You do. Yep. You are pretty good with your reels. Again, all jokes aside, I'm not just saying this because Narelle's my wife. I make this very clear, but she what? Is, she's actually a genius with that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. When other people are sort of relaxing and kicking back, I know people are busy and they've got things to do, but Narelle reads white papers. She's doing everything. She's always looking how she can improve the standards in a dog's life. So, like, she actually amazes me. She's mm. very, very industrious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mojo Dog Co. Yep. Einz a wiener. Einz a wiener. Mm-hmm. Rowdy Hound. Rowdy Hound. Dan, Dan Croft. Pharmaceuticals. Yep. Thank you all very, very much. You guys sponsor the show. If you want to support the show, support them. Yeah, the place to get the gear. Yeah. And if you get into Patreon and you tick that box, just know that we don't check that very often. <laughs> yeah, so you've got to tell <laughs> you us. You've got you to, you, you you got got to shoot us a message. Yeah, it's fine for you to let us know. We really appreciate you. We'd started off our shows talking about some of our new attributes, things that we've got. Yeah. And we would never have got that without Patreon support. It's That's Patreon fine. that pays our bills. All right. Enjoy the show. And our sponsors. Enjoy the sponsors. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Welcome back, traveling man. Thank you, sir. I'm back. It looked good. Yeah, I had a wonderful time. Yeah. So through the magic of digital technology, people mm. may not have even known what <laughs> I was gone. Well, I think they did because- We, we pre-recorded uh, episodes. Well, on the last one, you blew the whistle that you and I had recorded a back-to-back. Oh, did I? Plus, I deliberately let a week go. I was in Melbourne for my beautiful niece's wedding. Mm-hmm. So I spent a week down there, had a great time. It was just an amazing wedding. Mm-hmm. Very bespoke, very my niece, Jess, who's just a beautiful young lady. You know, it's incredible- and you know this experience yourself, but not quite the full evolution. But I held Jess in my hand when she was a little newborn baby. Yeah, and yeah. she asked me to MC her wedding for her. So I got to tell stories about her, made her cry, you know, like it was beautiful. It nearly made me cry. It was beautiful. It was, yeah, just, yeah. it was a great day, you know. It was all of the people that are very close to her. It was only 40 people there, uh-huh. but she just wanted it as I said before, bespoke and a small amount of people there. I had a great night. I got to play with Archer, my little nephew, and yeah, it was wonderful. That's so cool. That was the reason why we missed a week. Right. But also you were in America and I thought this will time beautifully with if I just wait the week, then I do the podcasts one week, next week, and then you come back and here we are live today. Yeah. And what was funny was we pre-recorded a bunch of stuff. I was largely offline while we were gone. Like, mm. And I even up until probably three or four days before I left, I purposely didn't post anything online, but just because like I didn't want to be in stuff. I wanted like while I'm gone, I want to be doing what I'm doing. I don't want to be sort of drawn to my phone, having to look at what's going on. And 
Meanwhile, the dog world imploded. Oh, didn't it? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we had nothing to do with it. We were it, totally out of it. Had no engagement with it and I'm kind of happy it went that way. Interestingly, kind of like we had a bit of a crystal ball for predictions, there were a couple of predictions you made. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about those just quickly? Well, I made the call that a few months ago on the show, yep. I can't remember what episode it was, but I said that I think a lot of the good known trainers in the positive dog training world, the plus R community, whatever we call them, whatever, you know, whatever label is going to get me in trouble today. Yes. Are going to be leaning towards becoming balanced trainers. Mm. And mostly because I can't remember the exact words I used, but certainly what I meant and what has come on come out is that because you can't be positive enough now and yes. their own audiences are going to turn on them. That's what we're seeing happen. Isn't it amazing and horrifying the cannibalistic attitudes of the people involved in a lot of these discussions I saw several things at Robert Cabral. Is it Robert Cabral? Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. I think so. He's put out some very intellectual material as well. Mm-hmm. He has engaged a few people and asked them politely without confrontation to come and have a conversation, which I liked what he said. I liked the way he said it. I liked the way he went about it. There was, interestingly, a post that he put on recently where, and several people have done this, along the lines of what you predicted and what you just said now, there was a lady who was talking about how she'd been heavily involved in a lot of these organisations and found it absolutely deplorable and disgusting the way they were behaving, Mm -hmm. the way that they were misleading people. And she said, this is words to effect of. You can go to Robert's page and read it yourself. But she was primarily saying she's horrified with what's happened, with how they're behaving, and she has totally rejected them now and, and has since then not only rejected the teachings, but also the institutions and has now joined the ISCP. Cool. Which is great. It's fantastic to see that these sort of things are happening. I just want to leapfrog into one of the concerns that I had recently along the lines of this, because there's a couple of calls for assistance that went out. One of them was with Dogs New South Wales recently. Right. There was a post yesterday that came out and cutting to the chase, it says they're under threat or we as members of Dogs New South Wales or Dogs Australia, the whole conglomerate, are now under threat because the Animal Justice Party and the like are now really going after the purebred dogs, making it very difficult. So for people who don't know, because that'd be a lot of people, explain what Dogs New South Wales is. Dogs New South Wales is the purebred registration body for all the purebred dogs. So they're the FCI affiliate. Yes. So when you work it down from FCI, as in the world governing body of purebred dogs, Yep and work down regional affiliates, country affiliates, state affiliates, yes. they are it. So when you have a purebred dog yep. with true FCI paperwork, yes. it gets issued by Dogs New South Wales. Correct. And when you go to a dog show for purebred dogs, those the shows governing body. are the governing body. Correct. Dogs New South Wales is the governing body of In those shows. In each state. They yes. are the issuer of the paperwork. Yep. And if you're a registered breeder, when someone says they're a registered breeder in this state yep. where we are, that means they're registered with Dogs New South Wales. Correct. Yes. If you're in New South Wales. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then there's, in Australia, there's affiliates, there's Dogs Queensland, there's Dogs Vic, there's you know, yep. all the different ones. So they handle all like, you know, semen transfers and anything like that that's involved with dogs importing or exporting from overseas to other countries. So it, they govern and all the paperwork goes through them. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, through their Gazette, which is an online one that I get, they're basically saying we're under siege. The Animal Justice Party is making life hard for us. They're going to start making life very, very difficult for purebred dog owners. They're pushing um, desexing, which is 
going to significantly reduce the amount of dogs and they're also trying to push rescue dogs on the people, which you'll get the other side clapping and applauding for that and they're saying, well, why aren't we doing this? Yeah, so let me play devil's advocate. Mm. To the average person, like the average non-dog industry person, that seems like great news. That's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. But what I thought interesting of that is the very group of people that stand behind banning remote trainers, prong collars, correction chains, tools which they call aversive behavioural collars or devices, are now finding themselves under siege by the very same people who we're under siege by. Yeah, they got into bed with them. Exactly right. It is an absolute phenomenon that occurs all of the time because they think they're safe. Mm. They think these people are their friends. And this is a prediction I made a while ago, is when they get rid of what they want to get rid of, let's say the aversive tools like they did in Queensland with the recent legislation change with prong collars and so forth, when they get those sort of things under their belt, they're coming after something else. They've always got to look for something to stay relevant, to stir up the pot. There's always something in their mind which has to change. Yeah. Interesting, and why I'm talking about this now is there's a correlation between what that lady said in Robert Cabral's conversation. Is She mentioned her words, not mine. She mentioned that she is sick and tired of watching these PETA-derived organisations literally destroying the foundations of the canine communities. Mm -hmm. I find that fundamentally interesting myself. It's been something that I've regularly commented on and brought up throughout episodes that we've recorded. If you look at it from an observational point of view, you can't miss it. If you're paying attention, if your eyes are wide open in this, you can't miss that this is the incremental plan, or I believe it's the incremental plan, is kill you softly. It's death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. It's take away one, take away two, take away three, and before you know it, a lot of these domains start to collapse. Mm -hmm. Sidestepping to another conversation, recently Narelle took Mando to one of the local clubs here in where we live. Mm -hmm. Wait, I got feedback earlier. We're not allowed to just mention names of dogs because to someone new listening that might have no context. So Mando is your Rottweiler? Our 11-month-old Rottweiler got that it. we got from Lisa Chin, mm-hmm. Stambakai Rottweilers. There mm-hmm. you go. There's the full story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Mando's turning out great at the moment, so happy with the way he's going. Narelle wanted to take him down. Her reason was she's very involved in him. She loves him. She's absolutely smitten with him. She does training with him now. She's been teaching him a lot of the current skills that he knows. She wanted to take him out to make sure that he is in different environments, he's around other dogs, which I supported, but that came with caveats and there are concerns. Number one, the club that she wants to take him down to doesn't use anything from correction chains up the scale. Okay. So to me, that's a concern to have a large, powerful, juvenile Rottweiler male. It's not that he's a bad dog. It's just that he's in that heady stage where he wants to try and push boundaries. So when Narelle went down there, on the opening day that she was there, the person that took the class informed her and the entire class of new people that prong collars are illegal to use in the state of New South Wales. Right. So Narelle came back to me and she said, is that true? I said, that is an outrageous and outright lie. Mm -hmm. And I said, she might believe that Mm -hmm. or somebody might have told her that, but it is an actual factual lie. Yeah. And I said, there are importation issues with prong collars. That's true. 
but to own it and to use it, there is no problems with them in New South Wales. Yeah. Victoria and Queensland are different. Half the states will allow them and half the states won't, mm-hmm. which is just crazy. But anyway, it is what it is. And, you know, we've gone through our entire sulk about this and mm-hmm. how disappointed we are with our governments and their overreach. But, but the point is at this time. At this time. Where we are today, which is the 23rd of February, 2023, prong collars are legal to use in New South Wales. There are obviously agencies who don't like them and Mm. would like to see them stricken off the map. We know that and we've spoken about that before. And they even say it on their website, we abhor these devices and we don't want them used. And if people use them in a cruel manner, then we will take action against them. But that could go either way with any equipment that you're using. Mm-hmm. You could use that with a no-pull harness. If you found using that in a cruel manner, then they could take action against you mm-hmm. because it's in the manner it's been used, not the device itself. I found that frustrating and annoying that a club is giving people infactual information, like literally lying to them about the legalities of tools. What they could have just said is you can use them outside the club, but on club grounds, it's a policy of the club that it can't be used. Mm-hmm. So I went down with Narelle. Oh, you went you went I, around? No, I let her go the first time by herself and she told me yeah, that. Yeah, so when she came back with that information. I wanted to go down and check it out for okay, myself. Yeah. I went down there and I watched everything going on. And, mate, I will say that things are nicely run down there. It's not lacking professionalism. It's not that it's not lacking structure and guidance. There are a lot of people down there who are most likely volunteers. It looks like a volunteer type of club. But it doesn't mean that they're not acting professionally. It doesn't mean that they're not giving good advice because some of the the varying levels of the classes were run quite well. But the problem is there's also a lot of young dogs down there. There was a big powerful shepherd that was there. There was a bully breed there and there was Mando that were all forming up to each other and wanted to vocalise to each other. Now, all that would have taken with Mando would have been a good correction and it would have sorted him out. Mm -hmm. How do I know that? Because I've done it with him before when I've taken him – around the facilities here and the girls have brought several dogs out. Yeah. He's been vocal. He's been distracted by them. I've given him one good correction. He's gone, okay, we're not doing that. The point of going to a class like that is to generalize your training, right? Exactly right. So- and that's what Narelle wanted to do. But as I said to Narelle, what it's actually doing, the problem that it's creating for him and for us is that it's reinforcing that type of behavior. Yeah. So it's making him yearn to do it more because he can and there's nothing to stop him from doing it Mm -hmm. because they even frown on you correcting your dogs down there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more about luring the dog away with food, which I don't believe in. I absolutely don't believe in when the dog is in that state of mind. Now, I know that when the dog chooses to tire of that type of behavior or there's enough distance between you, I know how it plays out. I've been in this long enough. I've seen people gesture this online and preach this or teach this online. I know all how it works. But then I've got to wait until my dog gets tired of that behavior, chooses an alternate behavior, and then reinforce him. I think the issue is as well, like that's confusing two things, right? So a desensitized and counter-conditioned protocol for a dog that is nervy and scared and is, you know, actually worried – it's a very different thing. Absolutely. To confident, yeah, robust. an 11 month old Roddy that's just pushing buttons yep. and is learning to like, oh, I can manipulate I this can situation. I can do this. Yeah. Mm. Like I'm able to achieve an effect. And I think that's one of the sort of critical misunderstandings that we see from a lot of people in dogs is that they don't really understand why a lot of dogs would do that. And, mm. and that a dog like him will just like to take control of the situation, will just enjoy the process of, oh, I bark at that dog that causes attention to me and to him. 
that dog then gets moved away. I manipulated this situation that empowers me, that makes me feel good. Yeah, like the dog is going to start experimenting with behavior, how he can manipulate his environment. And you can really quickly go, hey, that's not something you're allowed to do. And then try something else. Oh, okay. Well, how about I look to engage with you? And then that brings on reinforces food, all that kind of stuff. So you can just immediately remove that problem behavior from the the Mm. Rolodex of things a dog can offer and then dial in the actual behaviors that you want. That's my opinion on that kind of training and why people have misinterpreted that is that there's this assumption that the only reason a dog could be barking or doing those sorts of things that you're explaining him doing in a group setting is because he's fearful and they can't get through their head that like, no, he's just manipulating Mm. his environment. He's just taking the liberties that are offered to him in order to play with the space. But the problem is, as you indicated, one size does not fit all. No, totally. I know, for example, with him, all he wants to do is go over and socialise with that dog, but it's his way of calling out and it's obnoxious the way he's behaving and I don't want him to think that he's a right to do that and that's Mm -hmm. an allowable behaviour to continue. And when we were in the shed, you know, I think Verity and – Myself and Lauren and a couple of others were out in the shed doing a little training session out there. I brought him in. Could have been an NDTF group. I can't remember at the time. But a couple of us had – it was. It was an NDTF group. A couple of the students had dogs in there and I brought Mando in. I said, continue what you're doing. I'm going to let him come in. He's got to learn a few lessons. So he was doing the same thing he does. He was vocalising, pushing the buttons. He was wearing a prong collar at the time. I allowed him to push himself into the prong collar. Same sort of thing we preach, all the teaching, the negative reinforcement aspect of it. He pushed in, realised I don't like this. He readjusted his pressure. He came back to me. He sat patiently. I reinforced him. Then what we did, of course, is I allowed him, because his behaviour was appropriate, it was in line with what I wanted, I walked him over and allowed him to meet the dog. Mm -hmm. It went beautifully. It went as good as you could expect of two dogs to meet each other. It wasn't that the behaviour was aggressive, but the manifestation of this behaviour can lead to ongoing levels of frustration, which can incrementally ratchet the dog up into him becoming aggressive. So the writing is on the wall for him to become an aggressive dog through those procedures, which is exactly what I wanted to avoid. Just expand on that because I got a lot of feedback while I was gone. Yeah. (laughs) On we just assume that people understand what we're talking about. Right. So we need to expand on that in training wise. Yep in that a very simple procedure that happens to a lot of dogs like him Mm. would be that he's social. He's not a dog aggressive dog. So far. Yeah. But if you put him in position where he sees another dog that is of interest to him, Mm. there's a draw. He wants to go see that dog. He wants to have some form of interaction with that dog. While you're saying that, the lichen that I have in that is like taking a little child into a lolly aisle that knows what lollies are. Yeah but is forbidden from taking them or behaving a certain way in order to try and receive the lollies. Yeah. So he sees other dogs. He wants to interact with them. Yep. Allowing an 11-month-old Rottweiler to just run up and slam into another dog's is a recipe for disaster. Exactly. So no actual trainer is going to allow that to just happen. But they do, mate. That's the but, problem. But shouldn't. But, but so shouldn't. The, the procedure it would go through yep. is that – in restricting him from getting to the other dog, you are going to tap into frustration. Mm. He is going to be like, hey, fucking beat it. I want to go over there. And that is going to cause a bark. It's going to cause some vocalization. If you were to then be trying to lure him with food away from that, this is where the confusion happens because we talk about like if a dog has a, an issue mentally, i.e. like he's fearful or whatever, we agree you can't reinforce fear. Like mm. that that's an emotion. That's it's right. not by paying in that moment, you're not going to make it more likely. Mm. 
And when you're doing a behavior change protocol, you are in that moment looking to change the behaviors around that and you're reinforcing the behavior. Whether you're a tool user or whatever, by feeding the dog and giving them food or reinforcement praise, anything you want to give them in the presence of doing that, mm. if you were desensitizing counter condition, you're trying to change the way that the dog feels about trying to get to the other dog, yeah. whether they feel about it. Because chances are, if they're bark lunge growling at them, whatever, they're, they're probably fearful. But that's a time th- line thing. That's a linear thing where yeah. you've just got to let time and the realisation of the dog believe and understand I am safe and yeah. I'm okay. But where we as then balanced trainers go, hey, you're reinforcing that behaviour, is when we look at it and go, this is behavioural, right? Yep. So the, like he's expressing behaviours. He His emotion is that he's frustrated. His emotion is not anxiety or concern around the other dog. He wants to get to the other dog in order to play with the other dog probably. Yep. He is frustrated that you're not letting him. He is barking because he's frustrated. Frustration eventually becomes aggression and it looks like it, it can actually for many people be very hard to tell the difference between fearful based aggression, like anxiety, concern based aggression versus frustration based mm. aggression. But so he barks at the other dog. And then if you're trying to redirect him with food, you are for sure in that moment reinforcing Absolutely. the behavior. Yep. And and so a lot of people would go, oh, you don't get it. You're an idiot. You're a moron. You don't understand like desensitizing. Counter- We're not desensitizing counter conditioning at this point. It's behavioral at yep. this point. Yep. We right. like his mental state. Mm. We like that he is like happy with other dogs and wants to interact with them. But we are training the behavior of you have to wait for permission. Mm. You are not allowed to be leaking all over the place and- the problem is, and mostly where I see this, we, I know we've talked about this in the past, where I see this exact same behavior get demonstrated a ton is with the bracky dogs mm. where they're on harnesses doing this and they're like bark lunge growling to get to other dogs that they want to get to. They get so frustrated because they're being reinforced with food in this moment, which is, it is reinforcing the behavior, but it's not satiating the drive that they're in. So they just get more and more barky, more and more frustrated and that frustration eventually can become real aggression where when that dog interacts with the other dog, he will fight him. It will be, and it will be because he got there and he's like, what are we doing again? I've forgotten why I'm trying to get here. Yeah. I've been trying to get here for so long that it made me actually aggressive that by the time I get here, it escalated. that drive has to be satiated. Yep. And you didn't satiate it with food. You reinforced the behavior with food. You made the behavior more likely to happen but you didn't satiate the drive by giving the dog food. And so when, if he actually taps into a proper aggression through frustration, the only thing that's going to satiate that drive mm. is attacking the other dog, yep. is the fight that comes of it. Yep. So the issue of putting- And for the dog, in the mindset of the dog, that's the best possible outcome. That's fine. Yeah. Like, well, the dog's like, initially, if you said, hey, you got to wait, and then you're allowed an, a safe, controlled interaction with that dog and you can play- no problem. You'd never have an issue. Yep. But if you restrict them and let them bark, lunge, growl and keep filling them full of food while you're doing that, when you get there, they're going to smash that dog and still be just as happy. They're going to be like, oh, I'm satiating the drive that pulls me in. That's the thing, right, is they feel internally that they need some sort of outlet. And in their vocabulary, that's exactly what they need for that to be their lightning rod, Yeah, to get over towards the other dog and to grab the dog through yeah. frustration. And it may not have began in aggression, but- The problem with this, you know, like we've been talking about the variation between behavior and emotions. The problem is, is yes, they're feeling some strong emotions at this point in time, but merely grabbing the dog with their mouth, like a child would grab something with their hands and shaking it around will allow them also to feel relief. 
Totally. And it's the relief which well, reinforces the behaviour. At one of the seminars I did, I just did this big section that I don't normally do, but it came up on the satiation of drives. Mm. Like when you tap into a particular drive- We do this to, when we're teaching dogs to bite wedges and exactly. so forth. Yeah. So, but, but when you tap into a particular drive in order to bring on the behaviours that you wanted, then you have to reinforce or you, ha- you can reinforce with it ever- but if you don't satiate that drive, you're going to cause issues. Mm. Whatever drive the dog is in, the dog wants that drive satiated. So if you're teaching a dog to play tug, you're, you're tapping into prey mm. and the dog then eventually has to do whatever it thinks happened at the end of the prey. Now, if it's a border collie or whatever, maybe it pushes the prey away. But for the most part, they're going to bite, right? And so we play tug. We teach them to play tug and actually get into it. But if we're doing defensive table work and you tap into defense – you have to reinforce by leaving. Like this is one of the things that people to segue to bite work stuff is that people put the dog on the table, they get the dog in defense, then they give the dog a bite, but the dog bites in prey. So that defense was never satiated, right? Mm. So I think this is the issue that we see in this instance is the reason he wants to get to another dog is some sort of pack sort of drive. Like he's like, hey, I, I have feel some strong draw to you. I enjoy the company of other dogs. I want to be around you. I want to experience dog life with you. That's what makes him want to go there. Mm. And by giving him limited access or controlled access to that dog, you can satiate that drive, the company of other dogs. If he has that, you can satiate that and say like, yep, under this set of behavioral terms, you have to demonstrate to me these behaviors I will allow that drive to be satiated and you do and it's all fine. Yep. But if you restrict him, he's going to change drives. That draw to the other dog is going to no longer be that pack drive. He's no longer going to want to present that social aspect. That eventually becomes frustration. Frustration becomes aggression. Mm. And the reinforcer that's going to need to happen, what's going to satiate that aggression is he's going to make aggressive contact with that dog. Yep. And chances are, if you were to ask him why he did it, he'd be like, I don't know, but the wheel has to spin. It felt right. right. Yeah. Like mm. th- I have to see through this process. Like mm. that, this process has begun in my mind and I have to see it through to the end. That is what a lot of people are training when they misdiagnose this idea that, well, like he's, he's aggressive and it's fear-based aggression. It's like, no, you have made him aggressive through frustration and now it's real aggression. It's real. But before it was just that he was social and wanted to get there. And had you taken that off the table, like the, the presentation of that aggression and said, hey, you can't do that, he will have experimented with other behaviors. Mm-hmm. He will demonstrate other behaviors that can then lead to it. And those are the behaviors he'll, he'll present when he wants that in the future. Even a lot of really good dog trainers then like, oh, I'd never let my dog play with other dogs. I'm like, if the dog, if it's possible, if it's okay for them to happen, I let my dog do that, but with behavioral terms. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't just run in on other dogs. Yeah. Valerie has no, she's not interested in other dogs except adolescent males because she's, she's a floozy, right? So like if she, if you get a seven to 12 month old intact male dog, Valerie's all about them. (laughs) Yeah. But no other dog. She's not interested in the slider. She hates all other dogs. Not hates him, just doesn't want anything to do with him. Mm. Remy enjoys a company of other dogs. He wants to go and talk to them. He wants to like hang out with them. And in those instances, I say, no problem. But there's terms to that. Like you're not allowed to just run in on them because he'll cause a fight, you know, like he'll get attacked because of the way that he approaches. Yep. So it's like, no, these are the behaviors that I need you to do. I can teach you those. And then they are the gateways through which you are able to have that interaction that you want. Mm. But if I like all of the dogs that we interact with, most of those working dogs, they're so easy to become 
dangerously aggressive through frustration. Like, and we count on that. We rely on that being the case in order to teach them some of the things that we teach them. Yeah. And then we have a bunch of people who really only deal in pets that, and, and not to down talk only deal in pets, but only deal in like the very basics of pet training mm. saying what we know to be true of very detailed, high level training, trying to tell us that's incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, actually, no, that's not the, that's not the case at all. Yeah. It's like having a child enter the school system and tell you how to teach. Yeah. Mm. Turn up and be like at, at their U1 maths lesson, start trying to teach astrophysics. It's like, <laughs> that's not how yeah. it goes. It's also interesting the way that dogs behave in that time. And this is something that I've alluded to before. I call it the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome. The way that I explain it to people, because they're very unfamiliar. They, they're familiar with Dr. Jekyll, but they're not familiar with Mr. Hyde. And that whole manifestation is something that has changed beyond recognition of what it was behaviorally and physically. When you see the manifestation of a dog behaving like this, because I was watching how people were interacting and watching what Mando was doing, watching what this other shepherd was doing, like even the owner of the shepherd. I mean, I've seen my dog like that. I know what that he's like when he behaves like that. I know how disinterested he is in us and what we've got to offer because that, that pointy end of the stick is far more important to him than what we've got. Mm -hmm. He will take it, but it's sort of like reluctantly and it's not the way I want to do things. Yeah. I had to remind Narelle a couple of times, step away from this, move away, because we do things and think differently than what's happening here based on what's going on. Again, I'm not being disrespectful to those people. They serve a purpose. They do a good job for what they're doing, but not for my dog in that moment. Mm -hmm. It was wrong. Getting back to that whole manifestation of the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome, when people see that from their dog, they look at them and they go, I don't recognize you. I don't know you. Yeah. I don't know this version of what you're presenting to me at this period of time. It was either Huberman or it could have been even Mark Boris who was talking about this when you're trying to learn how to teach skills to people. And they said, learn it like you're going to present to a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. And that's why I came up with that concept of Jekyll and Hyde. Cause I thought, I know what I'm looking at. I know what I see with the manifestations of these new behaviors, but trying to explain it to somebody, you know, I use, when I'm talking about aggression, I use the process of Dr. Banner turning into the Hulk, mm -hmm. you know, like that complete manifestation, that entire change of him becoming this horrendously green angry, monstrous figure from a person who is usually very passive and very intelligent and very giving and a very thoughtful type of person into this horrendous manifestation. People see that with their dogs, they can't understand. They look at them. They can't even see who that dog was. Yeah. Ladybugs like that with lizards. You put a lizard in front of her, you have no way of communicating with her <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Any other day, she will totter along as fast as her broken little body will take her. If she sees or suspects a lizard is there, she will amplify that speed 10 times. It's hilarious mm. to watch her little legs looking like spaghetti flapping all around the place, but she will accelerate to the point where I know she'll end up hurting herself because her drive kicks in, she changes, you can see the manifestation, you can see... Intensity. The, yeah, the intensity, the intense focus. You can see the whole shift in her. And again, what you said before, I love that when I see that in a working dog. I love that when a dog is out on the field and a decoy is present and all of a sudden the dog snaps to attention and you build the drive and you build the intensity with the dog and through the dog behaving like that, you say, now you can have the cream. Mm -hmm. You know, you've given me the behavior I wanted. This is exactly what I want. The field is yours now. You can have it through the gateway that's been presented through training. But 
what they don't understand is they don't know how to put all those gates and measures in place. They don't know how to layer that in successfully. So the dog and you have a successful relationship where the dog clearly understands what the paradigm is for accessing certain outlets. Down there, they don't. For a dog like that, it can be a complete shit show. And for the owner, it can be a very disappointing outcome. Mm, For sure. Mm. So where were we? I I derailed all of this. You, uh, You went down there. We explained no, the that, process. That, that, I'm actually, I'm glad if that's the feedback that you got, that if we're off on a tangent of discussing things that make sense to us, yeah. again, <laughs> you know, like that's the importance of breaking things down sometimes is this is a public show and we're yeah, talking yeah. to people about helping them with their education. Yeah. Even though you and I are having a conversation of things that interest or frustrate us or alarm us or whatever we're talking about, it is very important because I don't like it. I don't even like it when I'm teaching something and people just nod their heads and they're thinking I'm too intimidated to say anything else. I yeah, don't yeah. I don't want to fall out or or seem that it doesn't make sense to me. I'd rather people do that. I'd rather people say, can you elaborate further? That's an important thing to do. Mm. The original conversation was Narelle took him down to the club. He was down there doing the training, but the problem was there was no way to stop him from doing this. Yeah. You know, the only way that I, I could stop him from behaving it was constantly reminding Narelle to increase distance mm-hmm. because he was in a certain radius where I could see the behavior was going to escalate because he was in that circumference where he was going to react to the dog. Yeah. So there's two circumferences that are around all of us at any one time. And that is when the eliciting stimulus is present, which is the thing that's going to make you respond, you either are aware of it or you're going to react to it. So it's a green zone or a red zone. It's prominently around all of us at any one time. This is why, and it has to be this way in order to successfully do um, desensitization programs. So if you're doing systematic desensitization, the eliciting stimulus has to be present. It has to be known that it's there, but the intensity can't be so high that it hits your circumference of reactivity because at that point in time you've breached the area, it's too late, it's already happened, it's got to be a complete shutdown and reset Mm -hmm. Uh, because you're already preoccupied with what happened and your brain is probably at that stage, it's amygdala hijacking anyway. So at that point you're unreasonable and that's where you do become Mr. Hyde. The amygdala has set you off, your brain's not thinking normally, your prefrontal cortex is closing down. Everything about it is literally turned to mush. Mm-hmm. So it's not a successful day. It's a reset day. It's time to go away and come up with a better strategy and rethink the process all over again. That's primarily what I could see happening. I could see him hitting the reactivity zone. We just had to take him back in, into the green zone, into him being aware that the other dog was there but not so preoccupied with it. We finally found it. But he was so far out of the group then that the instructor had to walk all the way over to Narelle and have conversation, which that's what you do. Any classes that I've run, whether we're using tools or not, if I can see somebody having such a difficult time, rather than sitting there trying to wrangle the dog and string the dog up or give the dog unreasonable and highly intensive corrections, we just move them to a place. Yeah, you got to work within the arousal level that serves you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we remove those high levels of arousal. We take the dog back into the green zone. So it's aware of it in there, but the struggle isn't present during the, the class time. I know that in time, if we kept distance, then we'd be able to reduce distance. But I just know as a trainer and through my experience, why make him do something that's going to take him six to eight months to do that I can do in a month Yeah, or less. And I did it the other day in front of the NDTF students when he was behaving that way with the dogs is I kept him at critical distance. I made sure he calmed down. I made sure he understood what the repercussions were for it. 
and he didn't get really heavy corrections. It was mainly through a lot of negative reinforcement. After a period of time when he gave, it was play that game. You give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. Mm -hmm. So we reduced space between us until he could see, oh, this is working in my favour now. Mm -hmm. This is explaining things to a five-year-old. You're explaining something with the lifetime capacity of a three- to five-year-old child. Probably a three, it's more likely a three-year-old. And that's how you have to go about life with your dog. It's progressively and systematically going through a function where that dog can understand this is going in the direction I want it to go. Probably not as fast as I'd like it to go, but it is going in the right direction. It's taking a couple of different forms on getting there because I've got a way that I would like to do it. I think it should be done. It's not happening that way, but it is happening. Mm. I can still see progress. I can still see the benefit of this happening and I can avoid all the discomfort and the so-called aversives that are happening along the way. Mm. I think there's a lot to sort of tease apart in that, but I think people, we've done a whole episode many years ago about like flow state, right? Yeah. And how it's like 80% successful is that flow state. Mm. And I think the issue with when you're unprepared to give the dog any negative feedback, right? Like, hey, that's wrong. Don't do that. That can look like a lot of different things. It could be negative reinforcement into an alternative behavior. It could be positive punishment to take that behavior off the table. What that can look like. Yeah, there's lots of different ways to do it, mm. but there has to be some feedback to the dog where you're like, Hey man, this is going great. Eight out of 10 times. I'm going to control your arousal yep. to the point where this is going to go well. And eight out of 10 interactions are going to be fantastic. But two of them are inevitably, I'm going to go over threshold. Mm. I'm going to think that I can get closer than I could, or I'm going to misread you slightly or the circumstance is going to change. I think that's one of the things that, like if you're working proximity to another dog, you're working distance. Distance is never really about the meters, right? Like if you're not measuring it, it's the intensity between the two. It might be to give numbers, right? Like you might be 10 meters away from the other dog and everything's fine, but that other dog looks at your dog. In many instances, you may as well be two millimeters Yeah, away, that's right. right? Like yeah. that's going to push you over threshold. So it's yep. not necessarily about distance. It's about the intensity with which there's draw towards Or the dog them. might jump or get a bit frisky or something like that. Exactly. It's just, it's just a, another variable. It's it, another variable. And yeah. so like without having to actually geographically move – you can come above and below threshold. Mm. And so I think that's the issue is when you're working that kind of thing is those 20% of the time, not only are they necessary to progress, but without them, you're really not making progress. And if you, it's inevitable that they're going to happen. So even if you go, well, I'm setting up, I'm never going to push my dog over threshold. I can read the dog, but you don't control the triggers all the time. Mm. Right. And if, especially when it's another dog and especially when it's a group class setting, those other dogs are going to increase that the amplitude of which they can cause an issue for your dog is variable and it will push your dog. If you're at a distance and proximity where you're getting effective training, you are having to risk going over threshold. And the issue is when you do go over threshold, if you're unprepared to do anything about it, you are doing something about it. People think that you have the ability to say, well, I choose not to reinforce or punish my dog in that moment but you don't have that choice. It's mm. happening, right? You can make a choice about which one you want, but if you choose neither, you get what is served to you. Yep. Very good point. If, if you are working that distance to the other dog and the other dog looks at yours, pushes him over threshold and you go, okay, well, I'm now over threshold. I have to remove the distance. I have to walk away. I have to try and feed my dog, but your dog does bark, lunge, growl, whatever it is. That behavior is reinforced. Like mm. you've tapped into it and that mistake goes unanswered. And so 
there's a learning moment for the dog, mm. right? And so this is what I think people don't get is that you're meant to have those. When you're working with that kind of dog, there's meant to be instances where it doesn't go quite right. Mm. It, like, but it will go right so long as you have the necessary inputs for the learning outcome to be correct. So I'm always saying to people, like, you could do a training session that objectively looks like shit. Like, you could set a training goal, announce it to the crowd who are watching and say, this is what I want to work towards, not take even one step towards that, put the dog up at the end and say that was a fantastic training session. So long as the dog had the learning outcome that you wanted him to have. Yeah. Now it could be separate from what you set out to achieve. If my goal is to be able to walk past another dog and because of the space that I have and the other dog and all the variables that go into it, even if I never get within 10 meters of that dog, if every instance that my dog does the wrong thing, it's addressed. Mm. And every instance that my dog does the right thing, it's addressed. And when I put the dog up, he has a learning moment where he said, he goes, well, next time I'll be able to go closer because of the inputs I received. Mm. That's a great session. It can look like shit to anyone that observes it and you can not achieve your goal. But if the dog has the learning outcome that will get you closer to the goal next time, that's fantastic. Mm. You've, you've done exactly what you were meant to do. But I think the issue is when the dog makes mistakes and those mistakes go unanswered, but the dog has a learning moment and you just in that moment have to just go, well, I'm set back. That's all that is left for you in that moment. If you don't give the necessary inputs, you have to acknowledge I am set back by this. And then if you have more setbacks than steps forward, you're going backwards. And that's overwhelmingly what we see happen in these sorts of, especially group class settings where you can't give negative feedback to the dog. Mm. Some very good points in there. Once again, there's a lot to unpack through that. And one of the points that you raised early when you started having that section of that conversation was about even experienced trainers still get their dogs in thresholds that they don't want. I've never met anybody on the planet yet who hasn't done that. There's no, no way to avoid it. That's exactly right. Don't look at that as being something untowards or something completely terrible. It's part of that learning progress. Some of the best learning outcomes happen through some of those struggles. It's frustrating at the time. We have talked about that. We've talked about levels of frustration that are going to incur in any one of the training sessions you have. It rarely always goes your way. Like I've had training sessions before where I've come away from it sweating and cursing and absolutely pissed off. I come inside and I sit down, but they're some of the greatest breakthrough moments I've ever had when I look back on them. Now I look back on them affectionately because I realize I was right on the cusp of something. I just didn't realize it because I was looking at it through a fixated lens. But once my skewed vision goes away, I think, holy shit, I was just about to break through and hit the diamond but I didn't realize what was going on at the moment because I wasn't ready to receive it in an appropriate mindset. I was in an angry mind. My mind was hijacked. It wasn't thinking it through. Those are the reasons why very early on, and you know, like you've just recently got into journaling with your bullet journal, which I'm going to get an education from you at some stage about that. One of the things I used to say to people all the time, and I still encourage it a lot, is journal what you're actually doing with your training because sometimes you can sit down and go, oh my God, I didn't realize I was on the cusp of greatness. I couldn't see it at the time, but I can see it now. And you go out and the next training session is completely different mm. because you received the information that you needed. You've gone through that frustration. The dog realizes that's not going to go my way next time we do this. How about we try an alternate behavior that's going to work? The dog is thinking about what's best for it. It is always thinking about, 
in order for my life to get better, I have to modify certain behavioral outcomes. That's what your dog's thinking. Your dog's not looking at you going, oh, I want to do what's best for Pat. You know, that, that's in my itinerary of today's outcomes. That's not how it goes down. If you're under an illusion that that's how your dog thinks, you're definitely going to be misplaced. It doesn't mean they don't love you. We've already covered off on that before. That doesn't mean anything like that. But what they are often doing is your dog is primarily thinking, how do I make my life better and more comfortable? And guess what? Same thing for humans. Yeah. You know, we're constantly you're a slave thinking- to your impulses. Of course. You're basically thinking, how do I furnish my life to be more comfortable. And you might say, oh, you know, but I know somebody who does so much things for other people. Yeah, because it makes them feel good. Yeah. Why do you think people record their benevolent actions on YouTube when they're going down the street and giving some homeless person $1,000 or they're taking them in and doing something? They're recording the whole thing. You know, like if it was true benevolence, you'd do it in secrecy. You mm. wouldn't tell anybody that you're doing it. And even then you're doing it because it makes you feel good to see other people. You might be doing it with all the good intentions. But getting back to your dog, because I know I'm going off on a tangent here, getting back to the dog, the dog's intentions are how do I make my life more successful? Yeah. How do I make it more comfortable? How do I make it more in line with my values? If we're talking about values, that's what your dog is thinking. Those training sessions, sometimes that battle that you go through, you might think, well, that's frustrating. Today, I don't like the dog. But then you come out tomorrow and it's new horizons. It's a new dawn. It's a completely new beginning with the dog. And you think, what happened? What changed? Just the dog realizing this battle just can't continue to go this way all the time. It's not going my way the way that it did yesterday. Mm. Today, let me try something new. And it might just be working in those slight increments. It might be a slight incremental thing. And if you're intelligent enough to see it, if you're a smart enough person, you'll realize we've completely changed tracks. It was small, it was subtle, but it happened. It's a complete new direction we're heading in. I've just got to stop there. I've just got to realize shorter, smarter, think for long term. Think the long game at this point in time. Here's a, a metaphor that may or may not make sense as I work through it in my head. Mm. I'm really good at parking a car. Yeah. <laughs> right? I am actually quite good at it, right? Difficult spot, chances are I'm going to get my car in Same, there, right? yeah. Narelle often comments on how good I can get a big car in a small space. Well, then I'm curious to know how you feel about this. When you pull into a, a place like a car park and there's tons of spots, how do you feel about that? And how do you, like, you're in an underground car park at a shopping center. Too many choices. Yeah. So, like, yeah. what ends up happening with me, like, if I go into an underground car park and it's it's mostly empty... Is I start doing stupid shit. Like I'll drive, like I don't follow the road rules. Yeah, you I don't start go, driving over the lines. Yeah, and I grow like yeah. diagonally across yep. them to yep. get to this place where I want to go. Like, and then when I get there, I'll like, I'll move my car two or three times. Like I'll park in one and they'll be like, oh no, fuck that. And I'll drive to this next one. And then I'm like, oh no, I'll move around to over here. And to me, it actually is a little bit aversive where it's just like, I'm sort of paralyzed by choices and I'm never really happy with any of my choices when I have so many of them. And I think a lot of the times when people don't want to give the dog any level of like aversive feedback, the same can happen because they've got like too many options available for the dog. So mm. you see people that are training with like three different balls that they're throwing for the dog and the dog's just randomly picking up one and the dog's off leash so it can run around and it can interact with whatever it feels like at the time. And no matter what the dog does, he can't get in trouble. So he can't hear the word no. And they've got food and they're trying to interact with the dog. And those dogs, I sympathize with them because they seem like they're having a much worse version than I do when there's too many places to park the car, mm. right? Because they're just kind of all over the place and they're not really committing to anything. 
and there's no rules, like nothing's defined to them. They're just able to sort of run around and do whatever. And they're just acting on every impulse, which seems like I can see how some people think that that's good. Like I can totally see how some people think that just getting whatever you want, however you want it as many times as you want. I can see how people think that that would be good. But that's not, that isn't what makes people happy. It's not what makes dogs happy either. Like I think that in my experience and I've, you know, with many, many dogs, the more narrowly you define to them what it is that you want, the more intense they are at doing that thing. And the certainly the more enjoyment it appears as though they have in the doing of that thing. And I think sometimes people take for granted the aversive nature of having too many choices. Mm. That's one of those things, you know, like you sit down at a restaurant and there's so many things on the menu. You're like, yeah, it's that sort of- used to do that. They had a menu that was like a book. Yeah. And it's, you look at it and you're kind of like, I don't even know where to start. It's intimidating. Yeah. Mm. And it's a little bit overwhelming to, to look at it. Yep. And I think that's very much what happens when people give the dog way too much freedoms in these sessions, right? Mm. And it's like, you know, I don't want to compel the dog. I don't want to make him do anything. I'm going to let him make choices. And it's like, yeah, but he might, first of all, he might not enjoy the process of making all those choices. That might be aversive in and of itself, having to solve the problem like that. But he may also make some stupid choices along the way. He may make some really bad choices. And if you're unprepared to give any feedback saying that that's incorrect, then he's going to keep expressing them. That feeling of helplessness in trying to do that can or be worse extremely reinforced. Yeah, it could be reinforced for doing mm. the wrong thing. Yep. Say when we use negative punishment in training on purpose, right? Mm. The whole point of negative punishment usually if we give a dog a timeout in place or something like that is that aversive nature of not knowing what to do. Mm. Like we're often, it's one of the things I just did a lot of work with people overseas. A lot of people had very tightly wound dogs, right, who are, you know, very good competition dogs, but the dogs are sort of always on the cusp of almost getting things wrong because they're holding them together so tightly. Mm. And to those people, I'm like, let him get it wrong. Just don't let him be successful. Like let him break and go and chase that decoy, but we're not going to let him bite. Let him try as hard as he wants. Let him try everything. And you let him try for as long as he likes, but we're going to have him on a leash, but we're also not going to let him back into that heel position. If he breaks the heel position to chase that decoy, we're going to agitate a little bit. Yep. He's stuck out there and we're not going to let him back in and we let it, we're going to let him try as hard as he wants to get that decoy and we're going to let him try as hard as he can to get back into that hill position, but he's not going to be successful in any of them. He's just got to understand the fail point. Yeah, and mm. until you've done that kind of training with a dog, you have no idea how aversive that is because we're doing that on purpose. We want yep. the dog to learn from his error, but we don't have to do anything physical to the dog to create an extremely aversive experience where the dog's like, shit, I don't know what to do. I'm without guidance here and I'm just like, I'm trying everything I can. I'm not f- solving this puzzle. And it's, that's one of the things that I think that gets overlooked when people don't want to give the dog information as to what will solve the puzzle of how fucking aversive that can be to a dog. Because I do it on purpose. I know that it's aversive. And when I need a dog no longer to do something, I'll create the environment whereby that happens. So like, I'm aware of how aversive that is. And I see people when they are got their reactive dog and the dog's just blowing up and they're trying to give it food and the dog's sort of bouncing between behaviors, blowing up, eating food. Then it's doing like a couple of minutes of the obedience that you're trying to get it. And then it's blowing up again. And then they bring out the better food. So the dog's interested for a little while. Like in the dog's brain, is just like a pinball machine, like mm. bouncing around all over the place. 
that is not a comfortable state to be in. Like, and, and that's one of the things that amazes me when people are like, oh, I'm in it for the dogs and I train with kindness and all this kind of shit. And it's like, well, you're fucking him up mentally. Give him an aversive consequence. Give him like a couple of corrections. Take things off the table so that he then can narrow his focus and be like, hey, man, you got like two options. One is to work with me and one is to not. Yeah. Right. And you can't just keep bouncing around all over the place like that. I truly believe that not many people are aware of how aversive that is. Mm. Like that is such a horrific experience to go through where you're like, I have no idea how to solve this puzzle and I'm bouncing around piece to piece, just randomly trying all these different things. And we think that we're doing that because I don't want to take away his freedoms and I don't want like you're fucking him up because you in your own life, you don't have those freedoms. And that's why I mean like my very, you know, I don't know how, how relevant my example is in parking, but that's one of those times where I get overwhelmed. Where I'm like, I have too many choices here. My behavior falls apart. I start driving against the rules. I start driving through car bases where there's no value in doing that for me. Like I'm better off just staying on the marked road points to get to the relevant space, but I cut through the middle because it all falls apart. Mm. Like there's too many options for me. And like, that's what happens to me. And I feel like the same thing happens to dogs when you give them so many options. They're like, well, fuck it. Like I'll do them all. I'll bounce around. I won't be satiated with any. And you never actually hit a point of fulfillment. And I think it's a travesty to rob a dog of the ability to fulfill itself completely, to focus on something, to teach a dog like, Hey, like become fucking into this, Mm. like, and feel the accomplishment that will come of having succeeded doing the thing that we're working towards together. I don't think too many people really get how powerful an experience that is and how reinforcing that is to a dog just to narrowly define what it is you want him to do and have him achieve it. Like very few people are really picking up how reinforcing that is just for the dog to achieve the thing that he is trying to achieve. And when you narrowly define what it is he's got to achieve and make it something that it is what you want and it is safe for him to achieve it, then training just, it attaches a turbo and the dog becomes such a willing participant in the training. It becomes so easy. This is what I always say to people. I'm like, actual training dogs to do stuff, it's so easy. Mm. It's so easy. It's preparing the dog to be ready to learn the things is the tricky part. And it's saying to the dog like, hey, you can't do that. You can't do that. You'll be like, no, no, these things are off the table. This is the thing that we need you to do. And then once you've done those things, getting the dog to do the thing you want him to do will be super easy. And when he achieves it, he'll be fucking stoked when it happens. Mm. It's very frustrating. It is frustrating. I agree entirely. I think the term that ties that all in is usually called limbo, being in limbo. There's yeah. nothing worse than being in a, a state of nothingness between two sets. It's funny that you and I have the same quandary that when we do go into a car park that's full of car spaces, I get panicky about that and then I opt for security. So what I then do is I go hunting for the most secure spot that I could basically find, something that's easy to get in and out of, something that if somebody does park next to me, they're not going to mark my car or something like that. Or God forbid if it's my motorbike, you know, like I usually then go to the very top of the building where nobody else or the very bottom of the building where nobody else is parking. Yeah. Usually look for a security camera to park in front of. So I go through all these play in my head about, What can I do because what's usually presented to me isn't available right here. And it's you're right. It's fucking tormenting. Yeah. It's funny because Jane teases me about it all the time. Mm. Like whenever we pull into somewhere, if there's like hardly any cars there, she'll be like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. What are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to do. Whereas like if there's like the weirdest, most 
bizarre, hard to fit into spot. I'm like, ah, oh, now I'm very comfortable. Right? He, he, like, watch my skills. Yeah, well, but even the challenge of it, like then I get like narrowly focused. I'm like, here we go. Like I have a challenge. I've got something I'm working towards and the process of doing it when I eventually do will be highly reinforcing, right? Mm. And so like I feel like it works as a metaphor. The other thing I wanted to talk about was on the topic of, you know, at a group class and it's a public club or whatever where Neural had issued the Mando and they don't want people using tools. What I'll certainly accept and I totally understand is one of the issues with using tools, no matter what they are, right? Like check chain, prong, slip, e-collar, all those, is that I feel like at those classes, if somebody were to put one on in that moment, right? Like imagine Mando had never worn one before, right? And had done no training. So he's not your dog. He's not a dog that's like actually in training. You're, you just want to use other dogs to proof the behaviors that you've taught him, right? Mm. You're actually a person who knows nothing about dogs. You turn up to this class with your 11 month old Rottweiler who hasn't been around a bunch of other dogs. You didn't know that he's going to blow up like that. And if you were to put the tools on him right there and then, the way that tool would be used would be much more aversive. It would be much more heavy handed. And the, like the, the experience for the dog would be much more negative. Yeah. It's intensified by the stimuli. Yeah. But mm. I think that's one of the, you know, to play devil's advocate for the people who only train in those environments to think those tools are bad and having seen the use of them, you know, seen people use them badly. Well, because that's all they would see. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like, Again, I just found myself talking about this quite a lot because people were asking a lot of questions about Kai, the bully that I'm, I'm working with. And truth is, like most bullies, he's got some, got some big feelings about other dogs. Really, the point of me starting to train with him was to input all the skills and understanding that I needed around the tools and reinforcers that I could then use those to fix his issue with other dogs. And so had I just whacked him on and then taken him out and shown him to another dog – chances are there would be no amount of pressure that would stop him wanting to get to that other dog. Like mm. that, like in that moment, once that drive kicks in, pain compliance is off the table with a dog like that, right? But so the whole point is of using those tools for the weeks prior is to just around the ball and the toys and food and all those kinds of things is show like, hey, this is how we communicate. I can reinforce you for doing the right thing. I can use negative reinforcement to guide you towards doing the right thing. I can punish you for doing completely the wrong thing. I can take that. I can mm. take things off the table and I can do those things in very low stakes arousal. Like I can control the arousal when it's just me and him. And the actual reason that I want to use these tools is not present. I can show him how they work and I can create like, People get upset about this word, but I can create sensitivity to those tools. And I don't mean sensitivity as in they hurt more. That's that's impossible. Like it, it is what it is. It's feedback. But I can have him go like, oh, I see what you're doing yep. here, right? Mm. So that by the time that I present it, the, the actual stimuli which with which I want to use them, he's like, oh, well, I understand what you're conveying here and I know where this leads. So I don't need to go all the way through it. Plus then I've also, with the tools, I've stopped behaviors. Yep. I've started behaviors and I've reinforced behaviors with the positive reinforcement that comes. So now having done all of those things, I can then pick that template up and take that to where I need to actually do behavior modification because all the training that I'm doing with him prior is just to prepare him for the behavior modification. Mm. Now in that instance with that dog, I enjoy the training and I've decided to take it a lot further, but that's how dog training goes. Like that's how we as dog trainers actually fix the issue with exactly. the dogs. There isn't a dog trainer on the planet 
except at ridiculous classes that just whack the tool on the dog and away we go without any form of preparation. Mm. Real actual balance training has a significant period of preparedness. Yeah. Mm. Hey, this is how we feel about these things. And more often than not, a lot of people, I have it all filmed. I'm going to show it at some point, but the actual pressure that I used on that dog in the presence of other dogs, most people wouldn't even notice I did anything, Mm. right? Because the dog was prepared. He knew, oh no, you mean stay in behavior. Like that prompt that you've just given me means keep doing what I'm doing. Or that flick of the leash means stay with me, stay connected to me. And I've did all that by bouncing the ball on the floor, like teaching eye contact and then bouncing the ball on the floor. And when his eyes wander going like, Hey, come back to me. And I tell it all those things in a state of arousal that I a hundred percent control so that I can use them in states of arousal where I'm not so in control, where exactly as we discussed, the other dog looking, the other dog moving, all those sorts of things become these variables and Mm. the inputs that I have to give. Now that's just dog training 101. Like that shouldn't blow anyone's mind. But unfortunately I think sometimes that does like people don't realize that the overwhelming majority of people who are going to use those tools, especially professionals, are going to prepare the dog for the use of those tools. Are going to show the dog like, this is what I mean when I do this. And I'm in a circumstance where I do control everything so that when I don't control things, I, we take it out to the real world and you know what I'm trying to explain. Mm. I feel like that gets overlooked. And so in their defense, like to play somewhat devil's advocate, that is, you know, like a group class where people just turn up, that in my opinion would be, not a great time to whack on the tools, but that would be where I would say, you know, if I was running that kind of class, I'd be like, Hey, today's not the day for you. We need to do this stuff away from privately. Here. Yeah, yeah. To prepare you for next week when you come back. To issue the caveat that I spoke about when we first started this is this is not me being critical of the club for doing what they're doing because largely what they're doing is working well. They've got a type of dog. They've got a type of clientele. They've been successful for years and they're doing a very good job with the volunteers and the trainers that they've got down there. It's not a criticism of the club at large. I'm not attacking the club. There were just a few policies that didn't work for us. Mm. So with the way that- Well, the scaremongering, saying that Broncos are illegal. That, that itself, that was wrong. That's entirely inaccurate. So that needed to be addressed. I think the better way for them to stipulate that would be it's a policy of the club that you can't use them. Yeah, which is fine. Fair enough. So Narelle asked if she could use a martingale and they said, "Mm, as long as it's not one with the chain in it. And I thought, well, what's the point? point?" (laughs) You know, there was a couple of things that I just thought, well, the only reason that she was coming down here was more for the social side of things. And I just said, look, I don't think it's a good idea at this point in time. Mm. I just think he needs to be conditioned better. He needs to understand he's very unregulated with his emotions at this point in time. We can do it locally and then you can take him down later on if if you so desire. I just don't want something to happen. I don't want something to happen. It only takes somebody to get in close proximity to him, him to react in a different way. Then all of a sudden he gets listed as a problematic or even he could be registered as a dangerous dog if he gets frustrated and bites. Yeah. And then people will look at me and saying, well, hang on, he's your dog. Why did he do that? Because he's in the environment where he can. Mm. And all of the stars align for those behaviours to happen. And this can happen to a large range of dogs. He wouldn't do it with me because I wouldn't, A, I wouldn't put him in that situation, and B, I would have the appropriate tools for him to understand and to get the feedback required that he understands this doesn't happen. Mm. When he was in the shed with me and when he was working with the dogs, as I alluded to before, when he was in that shed environment and when he was in proximity of the dogs when he started to behave badly, first of all, we increased distance. 
Secondly, he started to get some pressure and some feedback from the collar. Then his appropriate behaviour surfaced. As soon as it did, he started to be reinforced at distance. Then I started to show him, now that I can see appropriate behaviour, now I'll let you do something you want to do. And in essence, it's almost pre-macking his way through that behaviour as well. So I'm basically, as the principles of pre-mac is, I want you to do something you need to do, and then you can do something that you want to do. So I'm giving him that selection criteria to choose between the two of them with inserting the ability to be able to punish him or use aversives in training so he can understand this is how it's going to be. Because pre-mac people will get up in arms and say, that's not how you do pre-macking. Kind of is when you're teaching the dog the systematics of you need to do something that I want you to do in order to get something you want through it. So you're building a gate in front of the dog and showing him here is the gate. There is no way through it until you do the appropriate behavior. That's the way it's going to go. Mm. Good place to leave it. Yeah. For the most part, we've stayed out of the deteriorating problem. I think we had our own little say about just what's going on with your individual situation. We don't need to. Well, we kind of started it a little bit because when he first made that rubbish talking about how male trainers are all toxic masculinity and well it's all it's run away from all that anyway let's not get into it what no hang on before we don't get into it what i've got to say is that's become very tiresome and very boring to hear that yeah in general by anybody in the environment yes it exists yes it's out there but not everybody does it so let's not divide the sexes with the dog training industry let's build each other up because there's not a lot of that happening at the moment it's a deteriorating shit show with people trying to pull each other apart at the end of the day when all is said and done what we all have agreed separately in our own forums is we're doing this for the improvement of dogs lives yeah exactly but there's so much got in the way of it that that not much of that is happening anymore so realign your values have a big think about this and let's get back into doing what's right for dogs agreed mm. that's it yep for another episode of canon paradigm As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then go to another one you don't even download us from. Do it there. Yeah. Truly, the best way to support the show is just telling a friend in real life. Yes. Hey, you should listen to this show. And then- Support them on Patreon. Yeah, and then try and get them in the Patreon. Yeah. That's how to like monetarily support us. Three bucks a month in there, get your extra episode or a giant backlog of extra information that's in there it's as an well education as new portal. stuff going forward. So I have people ask me multiples of times, especially when they've just come through the NDTF and they've done their, you know, their entry level Cert 3 course in professional dog training and behaviour. We get to the end after they've done it or when we've done the block training and they say to me, now what? Well, there's a lot. You've got courses on Operant Canine. We've got the Patreon, Mm -hmm. which is all education. There's heaps and heaps and heaps of education on there. Or you could be just like our sugar mama, Barbara DeGroote. Just give us money. Who just throws large volumes of money at us. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Barbara. Anyone else? Jump on. Yeah. All right, do that. The other way to support the show is buy some cool merch. Mm. Jump into spring. There's uh, links in the show notes and various other places. Get on the website. You'll find it. You're, yeah. you're smart. I believe in you. Yes. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the discussion group. You can group source information in there. We've got more coming soon. Progress has been made in getting us on other platforms. I haven't told you about that yet, but I will. Yeah, so Mm. I'll explain once we stop here. But it's all good news. We're making forward progress. Or you send us an email. We are info at the canonparadigm.com.